<laughs> Hi. We're glad you're here. Let's go to Song of Songs, chapter one. You know, um, there are a lot of things that are really exciting about this conversation. One of them is the reputation we are getting in the community. And, uh, and so I just wanted to throw this up. Go ahead. We got this postcard addressed to Easy Free Fullerton. And, and I thought maybe that was a testimony to the reputation we're getting. I'm not... <laughs> so, um, I want to welcome you here. Um, if you are here and you're a regular part of our community, uh, we've just been so uh, glad to be able to have this conversation, not only with the people in this room, but with people that have been uh, tuning in all over. Um, and if you're uh, not somebody that's a huge fan of church, faith, Jesus, or you've been wounded uh, in the past, uh, I'm really glad you're here, and I'm glad that you would trust us with your time and attention, and uh, we want this to be a place where the grace and the truth of Jesus is just spoken, and that, uh, you know, we do enough judging each other. We'd rather just tell the truth and, and bring light where there's darkness and bring truth uh, where there's deception and just see what happens. And so if you're here and you've been hurt uh, by the church, um, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that very often we don't represent Jesus well. Um, not only in what he said, but in how he treated people who were much different than him. So um, with that kind of in mind, we just want to continually open ourselves up uh, to the scriptures. And even if you're not uh, somebody that thinks the Bible is any sort of authority, there is much wisdom to be had. So we're going to go to this ancient love poem, Song of Songs. If you remember, last week... Uh, we left, uh, there, there are three sort of characters. There's the, the man, the woman, and, and then this, this chorus of friends or daughters of Jerusalem. And, and we're not quite sure what they're doing there, but they kind of chime in um, at different places. And when we last left the conversation, uh, the woman was saying, uh, I am dark, but I am lovely. And that's not a racial thing. That was a, in that culture, there was a, a beauty ideal that she didn't measure up to. Um, that, that to have sunburned skin was a sign of having low status because you were working outside. And so we just talked a bit about beauty and how, you know, even 3,000 years later, there are these arbitrary standards that hold us captive. And um, we had what I thought was a beautiful time at the end. Um, where the, the guys gathered and, and prayed over um, the ladies, and the ladies gathered and prayed over the guys. And, uh, and anyway, it was a powerful thing. So we want to continue the conversation. As always, you can text your questions in. Uh, the, the amount of questions we're getting, there are so many, and there are so many good ones. I think we'll probably just have to do a Q&A night where it's literally we just get through all the questions because they're brilliant and we just can't get to all of them. And then many of you are sharing your story with us uh, through the website. And um, so I was reading those today. I, I don't even know what to say. I mean, unless Jesus comes to our rescue, we're dead. Because the amount of, seriously, the amount of brokenness and the amount of struggle uh, and the amount of hurt 
You know, you literally, I just don't feel in any way, shape, or form adequate for this. We can't, we can't therapize, therapize our way, if that's a word. We can't moralize our way out of this. We can't, you know, all of, morality is a good thing. Therapy is a beautiful thing. But at some point, the sovereign touch of a God, uh, there's just nothing else that replaces that. And so um, we want to be a place where um, we encounter uh, the God who sits behind sexuality. So, uh, Song of Songs, we will continue. He finally speaks. Remember, she starts with, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, and kind of goes on and on and on, and he doesn't get a word in until now. And, and um, Song of Songs, chapter 1, verse 9, he speaks. I liken you, my darling, to a mare. That's a horse among Pharaoh's chariot horses. Your cheeks are beautiful with earrings, your neck with strings of jewels. We will make you earrings of gold studded with silver. Now, gents, if you want to try this verbal affirmation, you may want to clarify a little bit because um, Pharaoh uh, was the ruler of Egypt, of course, and had many, many horses. Uh, The most sort of prized horses were horses uh, that were stallions uh, because they, you could breed them and take them into war. And, and so when he talks about a mare, he's talking about something like you would have lots of stallions, but you wouldn't have many mares. At least that's the idea. And so he's speaking, he's telling her that she is something of great value. She is priceless. Um, you, you might want to update the image a little bit, but that's, that's kind of the idea. And, and then she responds, she says, while the king was at his table, my perfume spread its fragrance. My beloved is to me a sachet of myrrh resting between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms from the vineyards of En Gedi. And, you know, we're re- so removed from these sort of affirmations, you kind of go, okay. So he compares her to a horse and she compares him to flowers. And, you know... Back then it would have been, but notice, I mean, notice, this isn't the language of, of science, it isn't the language of medicine, it is the language of poetry, it is the language of romance, right? There's a sense in which, um, fellas, that if you don't learn this language, you, you kind of miss out on a woman's greatest sex organ, which is her mind, her heart, she wants to be romanced and wooed, and there's a sense in which, you know, um, there was a study done several years ago. That, that one of the biggest indicators of whether or not a relationship would survive was the r- ratio of positive statements to negative statements. And that, and that they could predict whether or not a relationship would make it based on how positive the conversation was or how negative the conversation was. And so one of the things you see in this couple is that they are just incessantly affirming each other with such beautiful poetic language. You, you're like Pharaoh's mare. And you, you are like henna blossoms. And you know, we kind of go, ah! But there's a principle sitting behind it where they just keep reminding each other they're so valuable. They're so romantically inclined and connected. He responds, how beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. 14 times in these poems, he calls her beautiful. Remember, she said, I'm lovely, yes. I have this insecurity part of me, right? And so he just affirms, 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 affirms. You're beautiful, you're beautiful. Your eyes are doves. They bring peace and gentleness. 
She responds, How handsome you are, my beloved. Oh, how charming. Our bed is lush. Verdant is a way of saying it's fruitful. It's lush. And you can read into that whatever you'd like. He says, yes, taking that image. The beams of our house are cedars. Our rafters are like firs. I mean, all of this image, you're seeing, you're going, okay, no one speaks to each other this way anymore. And that's true. But, but you know, you would update it a little bit, but the power of the simple back and forth, the affirming of desire, the affirming of not only physical beauty, but the way they are as people. He affirms her character. She affirms his fragrance, his name. If you remember all of the images that we've been talking about, they just keep going back and forth. Chapter 2, verse 1. She says, I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. And, those, and notice, she just says, she doesn't say, I'm the rose of Sharon or the lily of the valley. She just says, I'm a common flower. There are many like me. He interrupts, no, 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 no. Like a lily among thorns is my darling among the young women. Right? So she, she begins to just say, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm lovely like a flower, but there's lots of flowers just like me. He says, no, no, no. And guys, this is a good one. Like a lily among thorns. Are you among the maidens? She responds, like an apple tree among the trees of the forest is my beloved among the young men. I delight to sit in his shade. And remember, we talked about that several couple weeks ago, where she had the biggest insecurity came for her being scorched from the sun. Well, this is a guy whose shade she delights to sit in. So he, he covers almost her biggest insecurity is the image. And then there's this line, I delight to sit in his shade and his fruit is sweet to my taste. And we'll just kind of move on from that one. <laughs> Let him lead me, but it's referring to what you think it's referring to. English, by the way, English doesn't, it doesn't do some of this justice. There, there's some things in there that you'd go, okay. Um, let him lead me to the banquet hall and his banner over me is love. We used to sing this song, uh, his banner over me is love. He brought me to the banqueting table. And the image is, is a bit more erotic than kind of the song made it out to be. Uh, <laughs> I stopped singing that song after I started studying it. Uh, she says... Strengthen me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am faint with lovemaking. The idea is apples and raisins were aphrodisiacs, and she's exhausted. And so she says, I need strengthened because this is exhausting. And, and then she says, his left arm is under my head, his right arm embraces me. And the word embrace means caress, and it doesn't mean like caress her face. It means caress body parts. Daughters of Jerusalem... Right, this, this chorus, these friends. She says, I charge you by the gazelles and the does of the field. Do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. Now, you may be going, what, is the, what in the world is going on? This book is a really hard book to study because it's built, uh, uh, it, it's... Um, to use a literary term, it's chiastic, which is not a sexual term. It, it, is, it is. Chiastic means there's a parallelism to it. It talks like the, the book talks theme A, and, and then it talks about theme B, and then it talks about theme C, and then it goes back to theme B, and then it ends with theme A. So there are parallels slotted all throughout the book. 
And so we're in a section now where they seem to be recounting the earliest parts of their relationship. And and, and in these poems, we see a couple of things. Number one, if you study the book as a whole, you see them interacting in all sorts of different situations. Number two, you see them unbelievably affirming of each other. And number three, you see them full of sexual desire, but there is some restraint displayed. In other words, this is a book not about the sex act, but about the desire for the beloved. That's what the book is. The sexual stuff is just the outworking of the desire part. If you read the whole book, and I encourage you to do it, if you read the whole book, the whole book is full of them yearning for each other. And infrequently, those yearnings are met, and then they're immediately followed by this statement. I charge you by the does and the gazelles, do not arouse or awaken love until it can be fulfilled. And so the way the book seems to unfold is yearning, 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 yearning that waits for an appropriate release. And after the release, there's this sense, listen, this is such powerful, majestic, beautiful stuff. Wait until it's proper time. The book is not in any way, shape, or form anti-sex. It's just timely sex. In other words, yearning, 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 fulfillment. It's so intoxicating. It's so powerful. Do not wake it up lightly. That's the idea. And so their words get more and more sexual. They start hinting at different sex acts they want to do to each other. Then there's fulfillment. And then she says, after she says, I need food. (laughs) She says, she says, this is so powerful. Don't wake it up. Now, there's another way to understand this. In fact, there's some commentators that say uh, that what this text actually means is, it's so exhausting, make sure you've got plenty of time. And, and maybe that's what she's saying. It's certainly consistent with some of the things. But, there, but there's another sense that, that these, she says this three times throughout the book, and it's always right after fulfillment. And so I, I kind of tend to think that what she's saying is, listen, it's so powerful, it's so adventurous, it's so majestic, don't wake it up lightly. I think that's what she's getting at. Now, What I want to do tonight, and this is what we've been doing through this series, is we launch out of Song of Solomon into other parts. Because the song just stirs up questions and and thoughts and like, okay, really? So I want to talk about the difference between normal sexual desire and lust. Because the book is full of normal sexual desire. And one of the things we're saying is sexual desire isn't a bad thing. We were sexual before, in the Bible's words, we were sinful. And so you just see this. Oh, I delight to sit in his shade, and his fruit is sweet to my taste. You know, refresh me with raisins and apples because I'm exhausted. I need more sustenance. I mean, the, and, and this is in the Bible. And, and what, usually when we preach this kind of thing, it's, you know, we kind of neuter it a little bit. But it's all sitting there, and it's saying, listen, sexual desire is not the problem. The corruption of sexual desire is the problem. And for far too long, we've not said, listen, is the desire for food bad? No. But it's the corruption of the desire for food. Is the desire to make money bad? No. But it's the love of money that's the issue, right? So we've got to separate the desire for the thing and the corruption of the desire for the thing. 
And so we want to talk about the difference between these two people saying, I want you. And she's saying, I want you. And him saying, well, I want you too. And this is what I do. And this is what I do. And the Bible not shaming that. And yet there is this thing that is called lust in the scriptures. that The scriptures talk a lot about how do you know the difference? So let's explore that. Genesis chapter 1. We'll start at easy free in the beginning. So good. So good. All right, so you'll see that almost all the time we go back to Genesis. Um, because so many, I mean, you, you take a conversation about homosexuality. You take a conversation about sexuality. And what ends up happening is you just pull all of these Bible verses out and say, here, here's what the Bible says about it. That isn't the, the most legitimate way to have the conversation because the Bible says a whole lot of other things too. There's a grand story that is being told and sexuality is invited to be a part of that story. You can't just rip out the verses and say don't because the story doesn't unfold that way. Jesus doesn't walk around just saying don't. Jesus walks around waking people up to a higher level of righteousness than people dared possible. He would look at Pharisees who prided themselves on never committing adultery and say, you know what? I'm so glad that you guys are proud that you're not committing adultery, but you realize the issue is lust, right? And that's in your heart. Or he looked at people who were so proud that they weren't murdering and he'd say, well, you realize the issue is anger, right? Anger is what gives birth to murder. Lust is what gives birth to adultery. Jesus kept zeroing in on the heart as the issue. And you can't moralize your heart. Only the gospel revives a heart, transforms a heart. The good news of Jesus isn't try harder. Try, just don't masturbate anymore. Just don't look at porn. Stop sleeping around. If that's what Christianity is to you, it's not Christianity. That's not Jesus. Jesus does something far more radical. So we'll talk about what that is. Genesis chapter 1. In the account, verse 26, God says, let us, remember there's this rhythmic poem that's being said over and over and over. Uh, God said, let there be light. There was light. It was good. God said, let there be this. There was that. It was good. God said, let there be that. There was that. It was good. And then it, that whole sequence gets interrupted. Genesis 1. God said, let us make mankind. It means humanity. It's generic. In our image. In our likeness. So they may what? Rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, over the livestock, all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that what? Move along the ground. So, God looks at all that he has made and he says, you know what, there's nothing that bears my image. Now, to be an image bearer, as we've talked about, means that however faintly you echo, human beings echo bits of what God is like. We're not animals and we're not angels. The goal is to be fully human. So, we have human desires and human frailties, right? We weren't made uh, as animals or angels, and yet we can't pretend that those desires aren't real, right? So, so the, the world just simply looks at us and says, hey, 
the kids are going to do it, so give them condoms, as if biology was the most important thing. And then the church at times just looks at everybody and says, oh yeah, we're angels, we don't struggle with this stuff. And all of that sin and abuse and hurt goes subterranean. We just want to say, no, no, God said, you're image bearers, you're human. And part of what that means, the first of the 613 commandments of the Bible was fill the earth and multiply. So sex was part of the original intention that God had for creating human beings. And that male and female were both image bearers. That meant they were of worth, significance, and value simply because they were made in God's image. They were made, it says, to rule. Now when it says rule over the fish of the sky, or the fish of the sky, the fish of the sea... The birds of the sky, over the livestock, over all the wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the ground. Here's the idea. Rule doesn't mean strip mine, pollute. It doesn't mean uh, hunt into extinction. Okay, the word rule there means to cooperate with God in the administration of the created order. It means to be, and, and, and we don't have time to look at all of the theology that sits behind this, but it, it means to be God's co-regents. His, his, like we're, the, we're the landlords, right? He owns the building, we're just the, the building managers. And do it in a way that brings glory and honor to God and benefits all of creation. That's what it meant to rule. Human beings weren't angels, they weren't animals, they were fully human, and part of their humanness was to be in partnership with God, creating and directing and managing creation towards God-honoring ends. Makes sense. Now, this is the part where we meet the talking snake. Okay, now, if you're here and you're like, I don't buy the talking snake. Okay, that's just fine. Let the talking snake be a metaphor to you or whatever. All right, but we're going to talk about the fall narrative that involves a talking snake. And whether or not you buy it, it's okay. There's, there's a profound point being made, all right? So flip over to Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. So God creates Adam and Eve. He nestles them into a garden called Eden, right? The word means delight. He's given them food to eat, He's given them each other. He says, be fruitful and multiply. Chapter 2 ends with, they were naked and unashamed. I mean, it was a pretty sweet deal. There was only one rule. Remember what the rule was? What? Don't eat of this particular tree. You can have everything else, but of this particular tree, don't eat. Okay? It's a garden full of yeses, and there's one no. So we meet a serpent. Verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now notice what he's doing. In a garden full of yeses, there's one no. So what does the serpent draw their attention to? The one thing they can't do. She replies, to the serpent, verse 2, we may eat from the trees, uh, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it. Now, God never said that part, or you will die. What does the serpent say? You will not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. In other words, 
God is jealous. God doesn't want you to be like him. God's holding out on you. God isn't good. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, she, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. They realized they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Now, this is the significance of the story. Human beings were to rule over creation, and instead, a piece of creation invites the human beings to submit to its wisdom rather than the Creator's wisdom. So instead of being over creation, now human beings stand under it. They give away this call to rule, and instead... Their authority is usurped by creation itself. Forget about whether or not you buy the talking snake. The point is that creation is now reversed. Instead of human beings partnering with God in the administration of justice and mercy and grace and whatever else over the created order, now human beings have listened to creation instead of ruled over it and now find themselves alienated, separated right from God and from each other. The first thing they do is they sow fig leaves, they realize they're naked. That is an indication they felt shame. The second thing they do is they hide from God. They fear Him now instead of being intimate with Him. In other words, everything that God designed initially that was characterized by a Hebrew word called shalom was now ruptured and fractured. The human being's relation with each other, with creation, and with God all now was fragmented. That's why this story is called The Fall. Because their disobedience wasn't just that they screwed up and God was angry, but it was they abandoned their place in the created order and now are tempted to worship and serve created things rather than the Creator. Are you with me on this point? Okay, this is incredibly important for the story, and about 14 of you nodded your heads. So I'm assuming the rest of you are dazzled. Now, to help make a bit of sense of this, I put together, well, I didn't put it together. I had somebody who's graphically designed put it together. A little, a little thing right here. This is the toilet bowl of horribleness. <laughs> or the tornado of sin or something like that. All right, but I, I want to show you I want to show you the way that this temptation went. All right? Because there's a flow to it. And interestingly enough, wouldn't you know it, thousands of years later, we still face the same temptation. Still yawning. There's a whole bunch of yawning going on. This is designed. That was you right there, both of you ladies. No, it actually, it actually started over there and it spread. I watched it like the wave. It was like the reverse wave of horribleness. As I was unveiling the tornado of sin. So, alright, so it starts. How did the temptation narrative start? You have a garden full of yeses. Focus on the no. In other words, focus on the one thing you can't do rather than all the things you can do. The Bible's word for that is just simply ingratitude. Right? You got a whole garden. You're naked and unashamed. Be fruitful and multiply. You can do anything. Just don't eat of the tree. So what do they say? Must eat of tree, right? 
right? We're still this way. You can have a wonderful life, but there's one thing you can't have. What do we fixate on? The one thing you can't have, right? So it starts with ingratitude. It moves to idolatry. And here's the key. The key that the tempter says to this woman is, God is holding out on you. He's saying, if there's a no at all, God isn't good. Do you understand that's what he's saying? If there's any no anywhere, God isn't good. And who's going to know better? Who's going to know better? Me. Right? Do you see this connection? There's a no. And if there's a no, God isn't good. Why? He's holding out. If he really wanted us to thrive and be like him, he would allow us to eat. This is what the serpent is saying to the woman and to the man, fundamentally. Right? He says, did God really say? Draws immediate attention to the no, and then says, God knows that if you eat of it, you'll just be like him. What's the implication? God doesn't want you to be like him. He's holding out on you. Idolatry is simply obeying something other than him. Giving your allegiance to something other than him. So they say, I think you make a great point, talking snake. Let's, take, let's go your way on this one. And so then they step out, and this is the funnel effect. They step out in something called immorality. And that's a big old Bible word that just means transgress, transgressing God's boundaries. And how do they step out? The best, way to, the best way to step out in disobedience is to deny the consequences. What's the serpent say to them? You won't die. Right? And then lastly, if you keep going, this big, wonderful word, imprisonment. Now, that is epic. That, the funnel plus the red writing just makes the point, doesn't it? And it's red for sin. You understand this because it's the tornado of sin. I don't know. <laughs> Someone took a picture of that, and I just went, I, how, what do you, well, here's what I learned at church tonight. I mean, how do you even make sense of that? So, imprisonment. Now, this is so important, you guys. Stay with me. How does God punish them? Does he lock them in to something bad, or does he lock them out of something good? In this story, prison means being locked out of something good. So the story continues. They're sent into exile. Now, keep this tornado of whatever in mind and go to Romans chapter 1. Now, we're going to come back and talk about Romans chapter 1 when we talk about uh, the gay and lesbian community and, and homosexuality and so many of the questions we're getting. We'll look at those passages, but I, I want to show you something that Paul says here. And this is going to come back to Song of Songs, all right? Are you still out there? Was there a no? Because we can, we can exile you and put a flaming sword <laughs> if that, that is something good. All right, I'm tired. Do Romans 1. Now, Romans 1, verse 18. 
The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. How about that for an opening sentence? Right? For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so people are without excuse. Now this is Paul's way of saying, listen, There is nobody that can shake their fist at God and say, I didn't have enough reason to believe. Now, there are all sorts of people who will say, well, we don't have enough reason to believe. And I get that. But Paul's argument to the folks of his day is that, listen, God has revealed himself. All you have to do is look out the window. He's revealed himself through what has been made. Now, listen. Verse 20. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. Now Paul is going to talk about the general condition of people called Gentiles. These are non-Jewish people. And he's going to describe kind of this spiral that they're in. He says, For although they knew God... They neither glorified Him as God, nor what? Gave thanks to Him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God to worship images made to look up like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. Now notice verse 24. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They exchanged the truth about God. Do you see that? The truth about God. Not about sex, but about God. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Right? And then he goes on to talk about how those shameful lusts play out. Go to verse 28. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind uh, so that they do what ought not be done. All right? Now, there's a whole bunch more that he says, and we'll look at it later. But do you hear language that's very reminiscent of the temptation narrative we just read? Do you see that? I mean, if you were paying attention, fire up the red glory, you saw the same spiral, right? What's the first thing he says? They, although they knew him, they neither glorified him nor gave thanks. Now, Would you agree that we as people are incredibly ungrateful, just in general? Would you agree with that statement? Absolutely. If you're single and you want to be married, right, you're unhappy because you're single. If you're married and you want to be single, you're unhappy that you're married. Right? It's almost like any any station of life you find yourself in, there's another reason to complain. Right? So it's like you get married and then you go, oh, but this is the only naked body I can look at for the rest of my marriage. 
Right? I mean, it's like no matter what blessing sort of comes, I mean, we are people who are fundamentally ungrateful people. And that's just, part of that is being human, part of that's being raised in America, part of that is being a consumer. We are trained to be consumers. And you understand every advertisement is designed to make you unhappy with your station in life. You understand this, right? So we have, a mar- this, this temptation has a marketing department. Right? It, we are clearly and incessantly bombarded with the desire to be dissatisfied with where we are, what we look like, what we do, what we smell like, and what we have. There is an incessant negotiated desire that says, if I just had one more thing, if I just got married, if I just got divorced, if I just could have sex, if I could just do this with my mate, if I could just do that. I mean, there is an incessant, never-ending stream of, if I could just... Fill in the blank. And so Paul says, you want to know why people are alienated from God? I mean, you could, you could be a single person who is incredibly gifted, does meaningful work, has massive amounts of friendships, but what's the tempter going to keep, keep pegging you with? Ah, oh, you're not married. You could be dating, have a beautiful relationship, Right? And, and, and clearly, this is somebody that you feel like you could spend the rest of your life with, but what's the tempter going to hit you with? Ah, but you can't have sex yet. And so that's what you focus on. Or you're married, and you have a great marriage, but what's the tempter going to focus on? Yeah, but you can't sleep with anybody else. I mean, every step of the way, the whole world system, empowered by our adversary, just simply says, do not be at peace. There's something more for you. And if you just had that. And we all know this, but it's the air we breathe. How do you critique air? Right? How do you, if you're a fish, how do you know anything other than water? Unless you're a fish of the sky. (laughs) Right? I mean... It is so, we are so immersed in it, we can all go, yeah, 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 we know advertisements are dumb. And yet, so we live, Paul says, in a world where we may know God, but we neither glorify Him nor give thanks. We live in a garden full of yeses, and all we ever focus on is the no, right? So when we talk about sex, what does everyone want to talk about? The no. Well, why can't we? Where's the line? How far can we go? Right? We just, we don't want to focus on the yeses. I mean, how great is it to feel attraction? How great is it to feel desire? How great is it to flirt? How great is it to whatever? We don't want to talk about that. We just want to talk about the rules. And then we get bitter. Because where do we go next? If there are rules, he's not good. I mean, he even says that. Paul says that directly. They exchange the truth about God. We're not even talking about sex yet. He's talking about your view of God. Listen, do you think God is good? If you do, place sex into that. If you think God is not good, how you view sex will be entirely different. It's about, this isn't about sex, it's about how you see God. That's where the battle is really fought. Is he good and loving and kind, or is he mean, vengeful, and wrathful? And so the temptation comes, hey, there's a no. There's a no out there. Immediately, well, he must not be good. And who's going to know better? Me. Sex worship is self-worship. That's all it is. The, the, The most common object of worship in American culture is self. The isolated consumer self. 
So anything that frustrates self-desire is deemed oppressive, repressive, bad. Jesus says, you know, there's a self you've got to deny if you want to follow me. So you have two completely different versions of human life. But notice how ingratitude feeds idolatry. If there's a no, he can't be good. Well, there are no's. Well, he must not be good. Who's going to know better? Me. And how do you step out and transgress? Deny the consequences. Is there no more fertile place for denial than in the area of sexual sin? It's not hurting anybody. It's just a website. Nobody's going to know. I mean, I, I had a guy tell me with a straight face, Christian marriage. He says, listen, man, it doesn't matter if you look at other menus as long as you eat at home. Now, ladies, does that, do you think that qualifies under the broad category of fidelity? Okay, so he's attracted to other people, but you're the only outlet he's got. I mean, that's just, really? And what's the rationalization? Not sleeping with anybody else. Hey, honey, let's bring some porn into our marriage just to spice it up. And that is the most damaging thing you can do. If you can't find satisfaction and attraction with each other, the last thing you want to do is add more naked images. You, you want to focus on, you want to, you want to go back to being attracted to each other. And not needing all the other naked images, right? I mean, there is no more fertile ground. Hey, it's not an affair, but we just spend lots of time together. Right? I mean, is it, is it me? Or are we masters at this? And we deny the consequences. So, the spiral is, there's a no. God must be bad. He must not be good. I know better. And it won't really hurt. This affair, <laughs> this one will meet my needs. Right? I screwed up the first one. This one's going to be awesome. And then you realize, and I've talked to people who've done this. Oh, the same set of problems that plagued your first marriage is here too. That's shocking. Because wherever you go, there you are. <laughs> right? So what does Paul say? They neither knew God nor glorified Him in gratitude. They worshipped and served the created thing. See, rather than the Creator. We're all worshippers, brothers. Do you understand worship has nothing to do with singing? Worship has to do with your allegiance. Who do you listen to? Who do you follow? Who do you want to emulate? What code, what ethic, what example drives the decisions you make with your real life? That's worship. We want to make it about singing songs. See, worship isn't a religious activity. It's a human activity. And sex worship is just another form of it. And so Paul simply says, listen, if you want to know, if you want to trace the spiral, go back to your view of God, and that'll tell you who you worship. And most people worship themselves. That, of course, leads us straight into violation of whatever, whatever boundaries God has set up. And we do that by rationalizing that they, they aren't so bad and it won't really hurt. And this is actually better for us. Until we find ourselves back in the red diagram of horribleness. Until we find ourselves right there. Imprisonment. Now, three times, if you were paying attention, Paul describes the prison 
that people find themselves in. Did you hear the phrase? God what? Gave them over. Now, we understand, listen to me. We, un- we misunderstand the nature of God's judgment. We think God is judging us when we get a disease, or when she gets pregnant, or when we get caught. I'm telling you that's His mercy. His judgment is found precisely in those moments when He lets you have what you want. Giving you over is another way of saying, I won't interrupt you. I won't stop you. I will let you have what you want. See, we think, oh, no, 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 we got caught. She's pregnant. There's a disease. We think that's His judgment. I'm telling you that's His mercy. His judgment is found precisely when He just says, okay, if that's what you want. And one of the things he says we're given over to are shameful lusts. Now, the word lust is a really interesting word. It comes from a Greek word that means in the mind. Lust starts here. Thoughts that are dominated by craving. Is lust just a sexual thing? Is lust just a sexual thing? No! You can lust after alcohol. You can lust after material things. You can lust after food. You can lust. What do you obsess over? What do you fantasize about? What occupies your thoughts? That is what lust is and where it begins. Slip over to the book of Ephesians. Now, oh, are you still out there? I know we're going on an hour, but doggone it. Now, Ephesians chapter 4. And by the way, there is such massive good news at the end of this. But let's just start by telling the truth for a second, okay? Let's just start by saying every single one of us is broken. Every single one of us. Not one of us in here has room to judge any other person. Amen? And so this isn't about judgment. This is just about piercing through all of our defenses to say, you know what, we're all screwed up. And realizing Sexual issues don't just start with how you use your body. Sexual issues start with how you see God. And until you see the connection, I mean, we'll talk about masturbation. I thought the biggest indicator of my success that day as a follower of Jesus was whether or not I did that. And I just wanted to, what myself now would say to myself, you know, two days ago. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, Back then. Is I would say, whoa, I have a friend who kicked a bottle. Um, I would just say, you know what? God's interested in more than keeping score about whether or not I sinned that day in that way. Right There is a bigger story being written. See, we just want to zero in on these sexual things and these rules, and the Scripture doesn't do that. There are bigger issues that sex has to be placed into. And once you get clear on those, then sex begins to make sense. But if you just zero in on the rules and the thou shalt nots, you miss the beauty of what actually God intends. 
Because you sit here and you say, well, if, he, if he's so good, then, then why are people born, right, with the sex organs of two different sexes? If, if God's so good, then, then why, why who people say they don't choose to feel homosexual desires? Well, why does he let them do that? Why, why, why do people um, who, who physically are men want to be women or who physically are women feel like they're men? I mean, why all of that if God is so good and sex is so great? Right? And so we want to acknowledge the truth of all of that and say there is a bigger story being written. And so we start with Song of Songs and you see this man and this woman affirming and restraining and there's this beautiful sexual desire that they have and it isn't condemned. But we're so screwed up that sometimes we confuse normal sexual desire with lust. And we just think lust is what normal sexual desire is. We just want to say, no, no, no. Lust is something far more insidious. Lust leads to slavery. And it doesn't matter if it's towards food or money or sex. It doesn't matter. And we want to look at what that slavery looks like. Ephesians chapter 4, verse uh, 17. Paul says, so I tell you this. And I insisted on it in the Lord. And he's writing to a church. He says that you no longer live as non-Jewish people do. The Gentiles, the pagans in other words. In the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Now this is where it gets key. Stick with me. I know it's been an hour. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, so, and they are full of greed. Now, holy big Bible words, Batman. Right? That is just a massive, you know, no one reads this at a wedding. I mean, that's a, just a gnarly sentence. But it, it says something about what lust does. Having lost all sensitivity. The word sensitivity here means the ability to enjoy something. Now, think about the alcoholic. Does the alcoholic enjoy alcohol? Do they savor it? No. In fact, what alcoholics will tell you is they've lost the appreciation to enjoy it because they use it for something else. Talk to porn addicts. Do they enjoy arousal and release? No. Those are things that are means to ends that have nothing to do with sex. They lose sensitivity. In fact, one of the most amazing things I've ever read was 2006, 2007. An interview was done with Hugh Hefner uh, no, it wasn't Hugh Hefner. It was one of his playmate girlfriends. And, um, and she said this. It was in an in in article in a, a magazine in Philadelphia. And here's what she said. She said, Hugh Hefner, the, the paradigm example of heterosexual masculinity, right? Carefree sex with, with you know, beautiful women all the time. And, and forgive my language, but this was the quote that Hugh Hefner can no longer enjoy vaginal sex. He has to masturbate to gay porn to find satisfaction. And I thought, there's an example of somebody who's lost sensitivity 
right? He celebrates and so indulged in an ideal that he can no longer now enjoy. That is what lust does. It deadens us. Instead of being more human and more alive, we become less so. And so Paul says, having lost all sensitivity, they have been, they, they, uh, they have given themselves over to sensuality. You know what sensuality is? The absence of the ability to say no to yourself. If I feel it, I have to do it. And then, <laughs> it says, so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. And we think greed here means something different than what he's been talking about. No, no, greed, the word greed here just means a thirst for more. So here's the image. If you want to know what prison looks like, if you want to know what it means to be given over, here's what it looks like. You can no longer enjoy what it is that you're doing. You feel momentarily satisfied, but afterwards you feel more lonely, more empty, more separated, and more alienated. And the only thing our darkened mind can think of that will help is more of what caused us to feel empty and lonely to begin with. That is prison, brothers and sisters. So when Paul says... God gave them over. He's not painting a picture of a God who says, you know what, you guys are so jacked up, heck with you. He's painting a picture of a God who says, at some point, I will not interrupt you. And if left unchecked, where our lusts take us is that you lose the ability to enjoy, you want to stop but cannot, and the only thing you can think of to help is to do the very thing that causes you to feel more empty when you started. And men and women, I've been very honest, I know that slavery with pornography and with food. When I started battling porn, you know, I had all this accountability and websites, uh, web uh, site trackers on my computer. And I told you, I think last week maybe, um, got on some meds, gained a bunch of weight. And the meds certainly contributed, but I wasn't fighting it. At my worst, I, um, on Monday mornings, Mondays, I hate Mondays. Mondays are the best day to sin if you're a pastor. You understand that? You've, you've given yourself all day. You've got six days until the next Sunday. And I'm usually home by myself. And so what I would do is I would go to Ruby's. And at my worst, I would have cinnamon roll French toast, right? About 1,500 calories of glory. And, oh, it was awesome. And then I'd get a, I'd get a shake for breakfast, right? And you know what would happen? After the sugar rush died down, about two hours later, I would just feel so icky and embarrassed and kind of like, I didn't enjoy that. That didn't do anything. And you know what I would want to go do? I'd want to go pig out somewhere. I mean, it was the weirdest thing. It was just like the struggle with porn. And I realized, oh, that is what it means to lose sensitivity. That you cease being able to enjoy the very thing you're indulging in. And it leaves you hungrier and more empty than before. Brothers and sisters, 
That is the state of our world. We are a culture of slaves who tell us they're free. And we just want to say, no, freedom looks like something different. Now, one last thing, and then we'll do some questions. Fire up the bread thing. Now, all of us are somewhere here, right? I mean, my guess is there are some of us who feel the weight of imprisonment. I mean, and I've talked to some of you. I want to stop and I can't stop. I'm addicted is our language, right? But that's just another way of saying you're in prison. Some of us are in the middle of acting out. We're people that, yeah... We kind of know it's wrong, but we don't think it's too bad. Some of us are, and, and maybe you're not just one. Some of us, we just can't say no to ourselves, in which case you run your life. Or for some of us, we walk around as just incredibly ungrateful people. The point I want to make tonight is simply this. Our sexual problems don't just start and end with our sexual problems. There is a bigger story being written about how you see God and his purposes for humanity. So how does healing come? Does healing come through trying harder? Does it come through trying harder? Does it come from feeling more ashamed of yourself? Does it come from staying quiet? No. Healing comes first and foremost when you come out of hiding. And you realize there is no temptation that has overcome you except what is common to the rest of us. No matter how twisted you think you are, there are a whole bunch of people just like you. Two of the most powerful words human beings say to each other is me too. Me too. So healing starts with coming out of hiding. Healing starts with understanding who God is and how good he is. Healing comes from recognizing that you can't run your own life. And learn to really worship and serve this creator rather than you. And healing comes when we realize there are consequences. And it does matter. Now, let's do some questions. I've rambled for far too long. If sexual intercourse is the thing that makes a couple one flesh, how can a husband engage in a fantasy sexual relationship with himself and not have it affect the one flesh relationship he has with his wife? I think that's a great question. And I would say... I, now... I'm going to get, uh, who knows if I'm going to get into trouble. I believe it is possible to appropriately sexually desire your spouse. I also believe it is appropriate, I also believe it is possible to lust after your spouse in really negative ways. I also believe that one of the things that men do, women do too, I just am coming obviously from a guy perspective, um, is to engage in fantasy relationships with, with other people whilst technically staying faithful to their spouse. And that's how I'm reading that question, is if you're fantasizing about being one flesh with other people, how can that not affect your relationship with your spouse? Well, of course it will. Of course it will. See, the fidelity the scriptures talk about isn't just an abstract, like, just don't touch someone else. It is fidelity of heart and of mind and of body. And wouldn't you know it, as Jesus said, where does fidelity of body start? Or excuse me, where does infidelity of body start? Infidelity of mind. And so one of the reasons why my brother who says, you can look at other menus as long as you eat at home, is so tragically incorrect. Is that he 
Lust doesn't stay level. Lust doesn't plateau. Lust always demands more. You start out in the Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue. It's the most erotic thing you've ever seen. And then after a while, that's not enough. And after a while, that's not enough. And after a while, that's not enough. And then pretty soon you find yourself looking at things that you would have been horrified two years ago at, but you're losing sensitivity. That's how this works. So you can say, see, that's a great denial. Well, but I'm not cheating. You are, and you will be, unless that gets interrupted along the way. Next question. (laughs) How do you control the sex drive so you won't want to have sex 24-7? Well, if you figure that out, let me know. My... My wife would like some advice to give me. Um, Well, I mean, it's true. I'm the guy that wrote on the premarital questionnaire, how many times a week would you like to have sex? Fifteen. That hasn't stopped. Um, And she wrote two, of course, and and she was optimistic. Um, But that's a different story. (laughs) So, a couple of thoughts. Um, and man, this is worthy of a whole other message. So, and, and no, I always feel so dumb giving answers because I don't know if I'm understanding the question right. And I know there's big stories sitting behind these questions. And I'm no Dr. Phil, although we may bear a passing resemblance. <laughs> and, you know, and, and, and I always think later of, oh, I should have said this and I should have said this. And so I'm sorry if I don't do a good job with, with some of these questions. I always feel inadequate to do it. But let me give this one a shot. All right, what was the question again? <laughs> what was it? Oh, yeah, sex drive. Okay. Um, let's talk first about masturbation, shall we? Um, some of you are going to disagree with this. That is just fine. I do not think the Bible mentions it. Um, the passages that are usually referenced... Those are, um, those are not masturbation passages. The one in Genesis about a guy named Onan was, was the failure to father uh, children on the basis of a dead brother. That's the really wacky sort of conversation that we will not have right now. And then when people say, yeah, when Jesus says, you know, if, if, you're, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Um, you know, we're kind of reading in there a little bit to... To think that that's what he's referencing, I actually think there's something much more profound he's saying. But I find it very interesting that that one of the most universal issues that people have isn't directly mentioned. So here's the conclusion I draw from that. Some of you take masturbation far too seriously. And you need to understand that the scripture talks about lusting. Right? And if you are engaging in adultery in your mind, right, that is transgressing, transgressing God's boundaries. I've talked to people who will say, yeah, I don't, I don't lust after someone. It's the physical release. And I will say at that point that I have no biblical basis to condemn you. I would just caution you that it can take over your life if you let it, just like anything else, Right? So some of you who were like me when I was in college, I literally would, in my journal, I would just say whether or not I was successful resisting that day. 
And I would say, you know, what, what an older, I would never have had courage, but an older brother should have said, you know, God's really got bigger things going on. Why don't you work on your relationship with him and masturbation will end up taking care of itself when you understand who he is and what he wants to do with you. And then there are other people I think who should take it far more seriously than they do. Paul talks about, I will not be mastered by anything. And I think there are a few of us who literally cannot stop. And in that case, I would say it's not necessarily the act, but it is the fact that it's compulsive that we need to address. So personally... I think God, whether it's through wet dreams for guys, whether it's through, oh, and I hate saying this because some of you are just going to fire up at me, but I do think, I do think uh, we have to say to young people that there are times that masturbation can be an appropriate outlet. I just think we have to say that. I do. I do. I do. I do. All emails go to David Fletcher <laughs> at evfree.com. Now, the other thing I would say, Paul has this great line in Ephesians, later on in the chapter. He says, Whoever has been stealing should steal no longer, but work with his hand so that you would give to the poor. Now think about the genius of that advice. Okay, what if I just said, hey, don't steal? Oh, okay, we could try harder. But he says, how do you steal? What do you use when you steal? Your hands. So he advises doing something different with your hands so that you could give to the poor. In other words, we don't want to deny or repress the fact that we're sexual creatures and wanting to have sex 24-7, at least in some parts of our life, is kind of where we end up. But he suggests that you actually channel that energy into something else. Like there is a rush. For those that steal, there's a rush. You kleptos know there's a rush, right? Some of you are sitting right here. There's a rush. And Paul's just simply saying, well, there's another rush too. Feed someone that's hungry and see if there isn't a rush there. And so part, what, what we're not saying is just starve yourself. What we are saying is you're incredibly sexual. Be incredibly sexual. But don't let the sex drive that you feel dominate your life. It is possible to live feeling sexual feelings and not having to be enslaved to them. Part of how you do that is finding other things to give your energy to. Next question. And there's more to be said. Oh my goodness. For about 15 years, we have counseled married couples uh, coming out of sexual addictions and have seen an increase uh, of men wanting anal sex. Also young women not married or experiencing men asking for this. Would you share your thoughts? Yes, I will. The, uh, for, forgive the words, but that's how people talk. The, the, the rise, um, the increase of desire for men to participate in this particular act is the direct result of that act being glorified in pornography. Absolutely. The, re- the request or demand of young men asking their girlfriends to participate, that is the direct result of their influence of pornography. So, if you're married, and like we said, I think week one, are there, are there any restriction in marriage? Well, sure. Being faithful to each other. Being comfortable, right? I shared a, a personal story. My wife still looks at me and says, I cannot believe you shared that. Um... If, you're, if, if your spouse is... A, yeah, and then you've got like 
safety and hygiene reasons, but if the two of you in a, in a marriage say, hey, let's give this a shot, okay. I don't think we have a biblical basis to say that's wrong. In fact, Song of Solomon explores all of these different sorts of sexual things. Now, this particular one, I don't, don't read about in the book, but there are other things that are in the book very quite clearly. So if you want to be adventurous. But if you're saying in dating, how do we talk about this desire? Man, I would say there's a bigger fish we got to fry. It's not the desire for anal sex that's the issue. It's the, it's the pornographic flooding of images that's the issue. And young ladies, please understand me. Please hear me. If your guy demands this of you in a non-marriage relationship, he doesn't love you. He's using you. See, the difference between love and lust is quite clear. Lust uses another to please me. Love uses me to please another. And when you learn that difference, then you're getting close to what the Scripture talks about. When it talks about two married people going, I can't wait to do this. And the other married person going, you're like a mare in Pharaoh's. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, well, you smell good. Well, yeah. Okay, let's... I'm a 17-year-old girl. I'm attracted to older men. Is it a sin to be attracted to them even if I don't act on it? No. Sexual, I don't think being attracted is a sin. I think Jesus, when it says he was, he was tempted yet did not sin, I, I don't think temptation is sin. Because Jesus was tempted and didn't sin. I would wonder why. I mean, if, and I would, I, you know, if somebody, if somebody who's my age said, yeah, I find teenage girls really attractive. And I'm not saying it's similar. I'm just saying at some point, I'd want to know what sits behind that. But if you find older men attractive, I don't think that's a sin. The issue, I think, has to always be, at what point does that cross over into something unhealthy? And I'd want to talk about that. Not because it's an older guy, but just it's in any attraction with anybody. There comes a point when that attraction ceases to be healthy and becomes obsessive or becomes something that's not godly. And it's not just because you're attracted to older guys, I would say, that it's just part of being attracted to anybody that this issue arises. Make sense? Okay. My ex and I broke up because we were struggling sexually. We were being pressured to break up by others. Is that a bad thing because we gave up? Or should we have tried harder to work on it? Ooh, great question. So when my wife and I were dating, I, she couldn't keep her hands off of me. Yes, yes, yes. And, 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 Ladies, you can understand why, of course. <laughs> um, and one of the things we did is we actually, and, and I, I mean, we were both 29, all right? So I had not engaged in intercourse. Before she was a Christian, she had slept around, and she'd tell you this if she were here. This is nothing that she would hide. Um, and she came to Jesus, and she was worried about our, what our sex life would be like. You know, would I feel insecure? Would she have memories? I mean, so we talked a lot about this. And like any uh, couple of that age, oh my goodness, you're built to want to have sex with each other, right? And the more intimate you get emotionally, the higher that desire comes. So we, we 
we're, we're wrestling so badly with it, we actually took a break. A break. And um, we took a month and we just didn't see each other. And I would go walk around her apartment once a week and I'd just pray. No, no, I mean, really, pray for her, pray for me. Uh, uh, one of the things I found is if, if I'm struggling with lust towards somebody, I just start praying for them. And I find that that, that changes the, the in-my-mind sort of thing that's going on. And so with her, uh, we took a break. And that was a really, really healthy thing. And then for the next couple of months, we would drive. I know this sounds so crazy, but we would drive to wherever we were going to have our date. And we'd drive separately. Because we found this curious thing. If we were alone at 2 in the morning watching a movie on my couch, we'd struggle. And so, I don't know why. I mean, it just sort of happened. And so, so we found fighting the battle before the battle was hugely helpful. We were still full of attraction and desire, but we weren't given opportunity. And, and, and the fruit of fighting that battle was on our wedding night. When I handed my wife, and don't make fun of me. If you make fun of me about this, I am literally going to beat somebody. Okay? Because my wife was worried uh, about her past and, and whatever else, I bought her oh, I bought her a Bible with her new name on it, and then I, I, I bought her, do not. Do not. Oh, I can hardly say it. I bought her... I bought her a, a little sculpture of two kids, a boy and a girl, playing. And I said to her, you know, under God, this is what we're like right now. We're just, we're two kids who now get to enjoy a great gift. And, and that was a really kind of powerful thing. So, are there times you should break up because you're struggling sexually? You bet. You bet. Absolutely. Absolutely. Being pressured to break up, well, it depends what kind of pressure it is. If it's good, godly, gracious pressure, that's one thing. But if it's, if it's legalistic, Pharisee, moralistic pressure, eh. I think it's possible to break up and still end up dating in a beautiful and godly way. Because every now and again, the flow of attraction just has to be interrupted. So you remember, oh yeah, yeah, you're actually, we can talk. <laughs> There's this whole other part of our relationship that we should be having. And that's a good thing. Precious moments. All right, last one. <laughs> oh, no, my husband has continually had multiple affairs over the last 19 years of our marriage. He's been to church leaders, psychologists, psychiatrists, taken medication. It's always better in the short term, but always happens again and again. Is there a point where separation or divorce is okay? I'm not sure what to do. My goodness, I am so very sorry. I mean, whoever texted that in, I'm so, I, I can't imagine the heartbreak. I can't imagine the struggle. I can't even imagine. I'm so sorry. You don't deserve that. You don't, haven't earned that. That's just, that's awful. And I'm sorry. Um, I can't, the, the divorce remarriage conversation is a big one, and there's a whole bunch of work I'd want to do prior to answering that question. But I would simply say this. In a lot, in most evangelical understandings, there are provisions for divorce in cases of infidelity. And um, I cannot counsel you either way without knowing more specifics, except to say this. 
Um, when you read Jesus and you read Paul and, and you read the New Testament, one of the things that you see over and over and over again is God's unfailing love towards his people, even though they're faithless. And so you need to know that God hasn't given up on your husband. God is still pursuing your husband. God is allowing your husband to experience whatever consequences and brokenness. And forgiving him doesn't mean you interrupt any of that. At some point, you do need to forgive him. And I don't know how long that will take or what process inwardly is required of you. I would seek some wise counsel on whether or not you should divorce him. I think biblically there are some provisions in the cases of infidelity that give you the allowance to divorce him, but because it's allowed doesn't always mean that's what you should do. But at the same time, I feel horrible counseling you to stay with somebody who's perpetually unfaithful. So please hear this. You are worth more than that. And this is not your fault. You haven't earned this or deserved this. And I don't know whether separation is necessary. I have no idea. And I would be, I would be unwise to give any advice further, okay? Because I, without knowing the whole story, I wouldn't want to do that. All right, last one. Man, I'm so sorry. Our, da- our daughter is five years old and already interested in boys. <laughs> How do we as parents raise our daughter to continue her natural openness with her feelings, but also teach her... That her value does not lay in what boys think of her, but how the Lord values her. Oh, what a great question. First, the best gift you can give your daughter is a vibrant, healthy marriage. How you, as a husband, value your wife. And how you, as a wife, value your husband. She will cue so much from that. Secondly, one of the horrible things we do with our daughters and other people do with our daughters, is constantly affirm them on how they look. Oh, you're so adorable. Oh, you're so cute. And I found this. I have a beautiful red-headed little girl with freckles. And I literally, I just find her so gorgeous. But I found myself affirming, over-affirming that, and not affirming her character. And so I, I began to just simply say, Hannah, I want you to know, I think you are absolutely beautiful. And I think that's part of it. It's okay, right? It's okay. We want to be beautiful. I get that. And, and I just think it's so powerful for a little girl to hear that from her dad over and over. You are beautiful. But if that's all she hears and that's all that gets affirmed, then she's in trouble. I think the other thing is restrict media. Now, I am a total Puritan when it comes to restricting media. Some of you parents are absolute idiots. And I'm not, I'm not even, I'm not even. No, no, I'm, I'm, if your kids have computers in their room, right, and have televisions and they don't ever come out of their room, you are stupid. I'm not lying. You are stupid. Because, no, no, no. Don't clap if you're one of them, all right? So shut your yaps. But I'm not kidding. They soak up from a seemingly innocuous show on Disney Channel. They soak up so many messages about boys and girls that I just simply, I am ridiculous when it comes to this stuff. I sit there and watch them and we talk. And if I see anything that's sketchy, I don't let them watch it. Listen, it is not possible to be too sheltering anymore. All right, it used to be But do you understand, most boys get exposed to pornography before the age of 10. You understand that? And it's not usually at your house. 
Oh, they're just spending the night. Listen, we've pulled our kids from spending the night places when a movie's being shown that we say, you know what? I don't care if it says parental guidance is suggested. You're clearly not offering any. I'm not, I'm not kidding. We force our young kids to grow up way too fast. All right? And by the way, do something with your daughter. And I'm sorry, I'm ranting. But doggone it, I see that in my own heart. Do something more with your little girl than just take her shopping. You know, play. I mean, do some, I mean, follow her interests. But, you know, I, I just, I, I, what do you want to do, Hannah? Well, let's go to Justice. This clothing store. And I'm like, well, yeah. okay. And, and being a, what I thought was a good dad, we'd always go. And all it does is it fills up her want-er. Oh, I want that, and I want that, and I want that, and I want that. And so her Christmas lists were just... And she has so many clothes, she doesn't... And again, it's not... Whose fault is this? Thanks. Yes. Yes. All right. I'm tired. David Fletcher at EV Free Fullerton. Now... Listen, we're going to do one last thing. And, and if you need to go, go. Uh, won't be, not that you ever need my permission to leave because you just leave all the time. <laughs> but um, I don't feel like I can have this conversation and not, and not pray for each other. I feel so inadequate. I feel so powerless. All I know to do is pray. And so... I'm just going to throw this out and it's totally ridiculous and we'll just see what happens. But some of you are here and you are absolutely trapped. It could be in a false view of God. It could be in a, in a relationship. It could be in a particular habit. And that whole imprisonment thing, you feel it. And it doesn't even have to be sexual. It can just be something. One of the first steps of healing is coming out of hiding. So... I'm going to invite you just to stand up and be prayed for tonight. If you're here and your heart's beating and you're like, you know what? I am held captive and no one's going to judge you. We're not going to ask any specifics. No one's going to look at you and say, oh yeah, that's porn. Over there, they're probably sleeping around. And over there, that's definitely gluttony over that guy. All right? If you're going to do that, you can leave. What we're going to do instead is we're going to go to battle for each other. Because some of us are sitting here feeling unbelievably hopeless. And all of this Bible stuff just makes it worse. You just feel, no, no, even God's not happy with me. And I just cannot let you leave with despair sitting on your shoulders. And so if you would be courageous, um, and it would, be, it would be really courageous, but if we can pray for you, would you just stand up right where you are? And you know what we're going to do? We're just going to gather around you and people are going to pray over you without even... Thanks for your courage, guys. People are just going to gather around you and we're just going to pray over you. And we're going to trust that God is going to lead our prayers. We're not going to shame you. We're not going to embarrass you. We're not going to do anything. We're just going to pray, okay? Sections in denial (laughs) over here. And, and if you need to go, and you go ahead and go. And if you're not comfortable, that's totally cool. But look at me for a second. We just don't want you to be by yourself. You're not made to carry some of this pain all alone. 
And the least we can do as a, as a group of people who want to be more and more like Jesus is to just stand with you and say, you know, we're here. And if we can help, we will. And it takes a lot of courage to stand up in front of a room full of people. But do you understand that means God's already at work? You understand you don't stand up in front of a room full of people unless God's doing something. People will always ask me, well, so have I committed the unforgivable sin? And they're worried about it. To which I say, if you had committed the unforgivable sin, you wouldn't be worried about it. So being worried about it is proof you haven't committed it. ADD point to say, the fact that you're standing up suggests that God's already at work. Do you understand me? This is a good thing. All right. For those of you seated, in a moment, I'm going to ask you to gather around all of the people who are standing. I want loads of people around them. And I don't want you to say anything to them. Unless you want to ask their name, that's it. Put a hand on their shoulder. If you're standing, I want you just to close your eyes. And God's people are going to start to pray over you. And we're going to trust the Holy Spirit to guide our prayers. Okay? We're not going to pray, God, fix this person. (laughs) We're not going to pray, God, this person is screwed up. Do something. We're going to bless God's work that he's already doing. We're going to bless it. And we're going to lift you up. Okay? Thank you for being courageous. All right, so every single person, if you are here and and you love Jesus. Now, if you're not comfortable praying for people, just stay right there. No one's going to care. But would you now gather around people? Go gather around them right now. And there are people in the back. Make sure you look in the back. Okay? Now, if you want prayer, raise your hand now so people can know. Okay, because now everyone's standing, so we don't really know who was standing, okay? Because not everybody identified somebody. All right, if you, are, if you are wanting prayer, do you have people around you? If you do not have people around you, raise your hand right now. Okay, right here, this young man. We need prayer folks around this gentleman. Thank you so much. Okay, now, I'm going to pray for you. You're going to pray for them. When you're done... Hug them, bless them. I'm going to invite our prayer team to stick around. If any of you needs prayer or wants more conversation, please do not leave here without that. But you are dismissed, okay? After you're done praying. So let's go to war for each other, shall we? In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit, mighty God, all we can do when confronted with some of the pain and some of the brokenness, some of the addiction, some of the sin, Lord, all we can do is beg You to be merciful, to come with power and bring healing and deliverance, to fight the lies that we believe about God, to set us free from self-worship, to remind us of the consequences, but to set us free from prison, God. Would You... Allow us to taste, to hunger, and to thirst for freedom. Mighty God, if there's anything that our adversary is up to, would you wage war against it right now in Jesus' name? And would you guide the people who are praying so that you would hear and answer their prayers? So brothers and sisters, now would you begin to pray over the people you are gathered around all at once or one at a time? It doesn't matter. Go ahead if you would.